Digital watches are a pretty neat idea is rapidly becoming an international sensation. To gain some insight into Jeff and Brian, the minds behind the podcast, we consulted brain care specialist Gag Halfrunt. Well, they are just these guys, you know? Hi there. Welcome to Digital Watches Are a Pretty Neat Idea. This is Jeff, and I'm with my friend Brian, and we'll be talking about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in all its forms. But before we do that, let's listen to a message from one of our proud sponsors. This episode of Digital Watches Are a Pretty Neat Idea is brought to you by the Pan Galactic Towel Underwriters. Securing your towel with the triple P, promotion, preservation, and protection. No claim will be processed without orders signed in triplicate, sent in, sent back, queried, lost, found, subjected to public inquiry, lost again, and finally buried in soft peat and recycled as fire lighters. Claim exclusions include towels that have been subjected to Ogun poetry, ripped or torn by being trampled on by the ravenous bug bladder beast of trial, or have been used to clean up anything containing that old jank spirit. And Galactic Towel Underwriters is in no way affiliated with the Pan Galactic Gargle Blaster. Do you know where your towel is? Hello, this is Jeff. This is the section I like to call, What in Life, the Universe, and Everything Are They Talking About? This is where I will summarize everything we are talking about this episode. I'm going to use this section this episode to tell you about a slight format change and the reason behind it. When I decided to ask Brian to do this podcast, one of my concerns was that it is not an open-ended subject, or, in other words, there is not an infinite amount of material. I wanted the podcast to last for more than a few months, so we had to stretch it out. Therefore, we decided to do a monthly podcast rather than weekly. Another concern was that not only was it a finite amount of material, but it repeated itself. There was a radio show, a book, a TV series, a comic book or graphic novel, and a movie. All of these have a bulldozer, Vogon, a whale in petunias, and the answer 42. I did not want to do virtually the same podcast five different times. Also, our goal of this podcast is to talk, as friends, as if we have read it and discussed it many, many times, because we have, about the parts of the book that entertained us or confused us, rather than telling and retelling the actual story. However, we feel that is unfair to the people who are unfamiliar with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, who may want to tune in to find out what this whole property is all about. Doing a single summary at the beginning seemed like a good idea. However, we think it will be better, for episodes about the books, to break up the summary into multiple parts and insert each before we discuss that section. This way, those who are unfamiliar with the story will get the basics of what is happening, and those who are familiar with it will have an indication of what part of the book we will be discussing. Thank you. Now, back to the podcast. Hey, Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jeff. How are you? Well, I feel like I have deja vu. Didn't we just cover this material? (laughs) All over again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know what? And I I can't stop thinking about uh, Rula Lenska and Robert Heinlein. Really? (laughs) How do they go together? Really? Um, (laughs) Really? Well, I, I'm sure that Rula Lenska never met Robert Heinlein. 
But um, I, we didn't really talk about this in the last episode, I think. But the voices for the Lintillas yes. was read by Rula Lenska. Correct. And that was mentioned in the uh, audio. And I wonder, did, did you notice that or remember that name or ever hear that name before? Uh Yes, Rula Lenska is is a name that I have heard and know about. I couldn't tell you anything other than secondary phase of what she is in, but it's in my mind one of the greatest names ever in the history of names. <laughs> well, that it is. But Rula Lenska, and, and the reason that I remember her is everybody knows at least everybody of my age or generation knows like Farrah Fawcett, you know, and the Farrah Fawcett hair thing. Yes. Okay, so that's a little prior to your time. I'm sure you no, had yeah. your own version at your age. Rula Lenska was a, a Farrah Fawcett-type actress, one of the sex symbol actresses. She was, and in fact, and what I seem to recall, and this is what I couldn't get out of my head, is that she did a commercial for VO5. Yes, I remember those. The shampoo, and she said, I'm Rula Lenska, and I like VO5, and her hair would flip <laughs> back and forth through the air. And Too bad this isn't a video <laughs> podcast, so we could watch you shaking your head. <laughs> yes, they have no idea what they're missing, do they? <laughs> they're grateful, but they have no idea what That's it is. right. <laughs> But anyway, uh, Heinlein doesn't show up until, oh, I don't know. I think it's the 19th chapter. Although we talked about it in the last, I think it was the last podcast you mentioned Robert Heinlein, which I should have linked it in then, but at the time it didn't seem that it would come back around. So, What Robert Heinlein thing are you talking about? <laughs> it's a secret. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> No, it's funny. It's just that Robert Heinlein was the inspiration, as it turns out, for Tribbles. Oh, I, <laughs> I know no you idea. would love to hear about that. More true. You're going to find a way to work Tribbles into every episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, not not really. But uh, I just thought it was interesting because he wrote a story and he had a creature known as a flat cat. Yes. And when the Star Trek people were writing the episode about Tribbles... They contacted him to get permission to use the concept in their story. And his only requirement was that he got an autographed copy of the script. Oh. Which he later learned to regret because he said he could have made a mint if he had actually made him pay for it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but anyway, what, what was interesting about that story really is that Heinlein shows up, as you say, in the concept of the wise old man they meet on that rock. Yes, the ruler of the universe. The ruler of the universe, exactly. So I think a lot of people would understand that he is a basic source for science fiction material. Absolutely. Anyway, we didn't come to talk about that. Oh, no, and, and I got more. As you know, I always like to <laughs> talk about something from the last episode that I thought about. I beat you to it, didn't I? Yeah, well, I'm. you're not going <laughs> to deprive me of mine. So... <laughs> Hold on to something, because I had one little simple thing I was going to mention, and it got away from me. So last time when we were discussing secondary phase, and you mentioned the part that had the 578,000 million Lintilla clones. Yes. I tossed out, why don't you just say a billion? And I thought 
that you thought I meant you specifically during the podcast, but I used it as a general you and was referring more to the author. Correct. Of why did he use thousand million Mm -hmm. instead of billion. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, I started thinking about it and why it was used, and I really couldn't figure it out. 578,000 million sounds funny in the respect of it sounding odd, but it's not funny as in humorous or clever or having anything to do with the story. Mm -hmm. I did a little searching on the internet, and by a little, I mean a little, (laughs) because what I was finding was giving me a headache. Oh, okay. So I quit searching really fast, but what I got out of it was this. Back then, it may have changed a little bit now, but back then and definitely before then, the numbers that we call a billion and a trillion in the U.S. are not or necessarily the same numbers in the U.K. Oh, really? A thousand million in the U.K., used to be called, or is called some by some people, a milliard, as in the milliard gargantua brain. Mm, okay. So it goes thousand, million, milliard, billion, trillion. Wow. So they add something in there that we don't have, so they don't match. So if he just said a billion, those are two different numbers in the U.S. and the U.K., but it doesn't really make any difference. It's just a great big number. Yeah. Well, that's cool. All of the research about this happened (laughs) because I had a stupid joke go through my head of which I thought would be hysterically funny. (laughs) And I wish he would have used it. Oh, well, when you set it up that way, you know it's going to be funny. (laughs) Yeah. Well, forget about the fact that there's this milliard thing. And if you just imagine that million and billion are the same in the U.S. and the U.K., Mm -hmm. Okay. If instead of 578,000 million, he said 578,000 billion, that would have shown he was intentionally avoiding trillion. Because <laughs> <laughs> she got wrote out of the story. Oh, uh huh. Didn't even want to use her as a number. <laughs> Oh my goodness! That uh, okay. All right. Well, well, yeah. Well, so that well, one little okay. joke about avoiding trillion <laughs> sent me down the rabbit hole of figuring out why he said thousand million, and I learned there mm-hmm. was a reason. There you go. All right. Brilliant. So this is episode five, and we're finally going to talk about the book, which most people probably thought should have been episode number one. <laughs> But again, that's not the way this whole thing comes together. No, it's not. Since this is the second time through this material, I've already stated many of my favorite jokes. There will be many more. I'm going to try to not repeat myself, and I hope to concentrate more on things either not in or that I did not mention when discussing the audio version. Okay. Yeah, this is going to be a bit of a challenge, but I look forward to it. Summary, part one. Arthur Dent wakes up to discover his house is about to be knocked down to make way for a bypass. He attempts to stop it by lying in front of a bulldozer. His friend, Ford Prefect, who is not from Earth, is a field reporter for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He convinces Arthur and the demolition foreman 
Elprosser to switch places in the mud so he and Arthur can go to the pub. Ford tells Arthur the earth is about to be destroyed by the Vogons. Ford and Arthur escape from the earth by hitchhiking a ride on one of the ships sent to destroy it. I want to start with this specific joke. The reason I like many of the jokes in this book is because they are not predictable. You don't see them coming. He's sending you down a road and you kind of have an idea of where it's going. And then as soon as he gets to the punchline, it's a left turn. The man in charge of the bulldozer crew, El Prosser, is said to be a male line descendant of Genghis Khan. Right. However, through all the years and racial mixing, the only vestiges of his mighty ancestry that he has is a pronounced stoutness about the tongue and... So here, as I'm reading, of course, I have an expectation of reading another physical characteristic that Prosser has that's similar to Genghis Khan. Mm -hmm. The last thing I expected for him to have was a predilection for little fur hats. (laughs) So forget about all those other favorite jokes. That one is my favorite joke. (laughs) You know, and, and I do really like that reference. But the thing that I can't quite get out of my head when he talks about the little fur hats is there's a number of times where he says that Prosser reaches up and spins the hat around his head or something to that effect. Yes, yeah. And I keep thinking to myself, if I'm wearing a little fur hat, I'm going to take it off in my hands and spin it around in my hand, not around my head. I, (laughs) I, I just That's always been one thing about that particular scene that's flummoxed me. You know, I'm kind of getting a vibe like the Three Stooges, you know, where... (laughs) <laughs> where he's going spinning the hat around the top of his head it, it doesn't quite work for me okay oh <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a very polite okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> moving on <laughs> right so we're somewhere in the uh, chapter two when we start story starts off talking about alcohol and that's where they first mentioned the pan-galactic gargle blaster. Yeah. And the effects that alcohol has on some carbon-based uh, life forms. Right. And I just love the description of how the pan-galactic gargle blaster is created. I love the line at the end where he says, And sprinkle Zamphor. <laughs> <laughs> Another case of where I think he uses a perfect <laughs> phrase. He wants to be as vulgar as he can be without being vulgar. He will let the readers do the work for him and make it up themselves. Okay. When he described the drinking game where the opponents concentrated their will to pour that old jank spirit into the other's glass, which they then drank, and at which Ford Prefect always played to lose, Correct. he described the forfeit as obscenely biological. Very nonspecific in detail, (laughs) but very specific in its meaning. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Well done. A concept that I liked that he introduced is that at moments of great stress, beings send a subliminal signal indicating the distance from their birthplace. And on Earth, it's never more than 16,000 miles But because Ford is 600 light years away from his birthplace and under great stress with the Vogons coming to destroy the Earth, the barman gets this 
feeling that he can't understand and has this whole new profound respect for Ford and all of a sudden believes, you know, and Ford is right, that the Earth is going to be destroyed. <laughs> I'm getting to the page in my notes where I've wrote, written something about that. <laughs> and this is where, uh, this is also the scene where where uh, Ford says, time is an illusion, lunchtime doubly so. <laughs> Again, uh, one of my favorite lines. Yeah, and Arthur tells him that Reader's Digest has a page for people like you. <laughs> <laughs> When we reviewed this book, I listened to it on audio by the author. Yes, me too. And it wasn't until I got to nearly the end of the book and I was working my way through it that I actually decided, you know what, I'll pick up the book and read through it as I'm listening to it. Oh. There's an interesting dichotomy between the way Douglas Adams reads this book and the way it's actually written, at least in the version that I have here in paperback sitting in front of me, which I don't have a reference to right here, but we will talk about that as we go through. Oh, yes. I do know that there are different versions, and some of that, again, I will talk about, I think, coming up. But they do have different versions, which have slightly different phraseology. But we also find out it's Thursday. Yep. Because that's when he mentions that it's that it's Thursday and he could never get the hang of a th Thursday. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so in my notes, I have come to the end of the Earth. Uh, anything to say before the Earth ends? Uh, let's see. A bath towel from Marks and Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> that's your note? That's how you wrote your notes? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because, he, you know, it, we, we've already reviewed the fact that the towels don't show up uh, until an afterthought in phase two, right? Yes. And so it's here in the book where the towel story gets expanded, and it's specifically that Ford is carrying one from Marks and Spencer. Yes, he is. <laughs> so what I want to say is that I am willing to wager that... In all of science fiction, where a description is written of a planet being destroyed, there is none more effective than there was a terrible ghastly silence, there was a terrible ghastly noise, there was a terrible ghastly silence. I thought that was a perfect description for the destruction of a planet. Oh yes, very effective. Summary Part 2. Zaphod Beeblebrox and Trillian are on the planet Damagrin. They are attending the launching of the Heart of Gold, which they steal. The Heart of Gold is equipped with the new infinite improbability drive and a depressed robot named Marvin. On the Vogon ship, Ford and Arthur are captured. They are tortured with poetry and thrown off the ship. They are picked up automatically by the Heart of Gold's infinite improbability drive. The Heart of Gold orbits the legendary planet of Magrathea and is attacked by an automated defense system. With the computer disabled in desperation, Arthur activates the infinite improbability drive. The missiles turn into a bowl of petunias and a surprised looking whale. Zaphod and Trillian are introduced earlier in the book than they are in the radio series. 
So we meet them here on Damagrin at the launching of the Heart of Gold, which he steals. What I like the most about this part is that Zaphod is nervous. He's got anxiety about this whole thing. Mm-hmm. In anything we've ever seen previous, he just seems like he's this carefree, not a worry in the world, just do what I want, no consequences. The book says that his outside appearance is overly relaxed, but inside, his nerves sang shriller than a dog whistle. And later, that at any moment, he might scream. So it was nice seeing that Zaphod actually is is affected by everything that's going on and everything that he's doing, because that does not come across at all in the radio series. No, you're right. That doesn't. No, it's not really part of what they talk about, or that it's his 200th birthday. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Coincidentally, <laughs> and here, here they also mentioned that he had the third arm attached to improve his ski boxing. Yes, yeah. Uh, rather than especially for Trillian, as was said in the right. primary phase. <laughs> I think it's easier to relate to him with this extra bit of understanding. It is. Another one of the jokes that many people will mention as their favorite joke, and it is way up there on my list, is something that I did not see coming. Right after they were picked up by the Dentrassi and they were on the Vogon ship, Ford was warning Arthur about the jump into hyperspace as being unpleasantly like being drunk. Mm-hmm. And of course, Arthur asks, what's unpleasant about that? And Ford said, ask a glass of water. And to me, that was one of those <laughs> jokes that makes me stop reading for a bit and then like, what? Oh, and just like shake my head like, wow, <laughs> I want to read that again. <laughs> just... <laughs> yep, I love that line. There's a lot of that where you just have to stop and kind of absorb what you just read because it doesn't register right away. No. <laughs> Oh, I also wanted to point out, just as a aside here, really, and we, we talked a little bit about this, I think, um, when they talk about Zaphod visiting Earth, they do mention that in this chapter, and they say that he went incognito. Yes. And I've always wondered, I think we've had discussions about, I don't know whether we've had this on our podcast or not, but we've had discussions about, well, how is it that he isn't extremely obvious with three arms and two heads i mean we're we're eventually going to get into it the the tv show and even i think the movie shows his second head is like retractable in the movie and in the tv show it's it's oddly weird it's like a paper mache yeah (laughs) he disguised himself in some form is really the only point that i wanted to make about that well because if he did have three arms and two heads walking around earth would yeah <laughs> he'd have to go in a little bit difficult <laughs> yeah <laughs> for some reason another little bit that i really latched onto as a favorite is when it talked about space being big really big it says after they settle mm-hmm. down there's a part about the beautiful planet of bethsalamin They were so worried about the cumulative erosion from over 10 billion visitors a year that any imbalance between the amount you ate and the amount you excreted was surgically removed from your body. And if that wasn't bad enough, they say, so every time you went to the bathroom, it was vitally important to get a receipt. (laughs) 
<laughs> that whole concept oh, just absolutely floors me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So in this area, we're also talking about the Vogons and their dedication to the galactic civil service. And one of the things that they also talk about here is they talk about Ford's name. And what's interesting to me about that is this is where I know we had a conversation about they make a comment in the phase two when Marvin arrives at the Hitchhiker's Guide lobby and says they say that he's been unable to adequately explain how he got there. Right. Well, that's a reference to Ford and Ford's father, where during the collapsing Harung, which he escaped from, Beetlejuice 5, I believe it was, he's never been adequately or satisfactorily able to explain what a Harung was and <laughs> why it chose to collapse. That's right. <laughs> and that, that reference became a little part of Marvin's story in the radio show. Right. And I knew it was out there somewhere, and... I still think it's funny that all the kids called uh, Ford X when he was a child because that X uh, translates as boy who is unable to explain what a harung is nor why it <laughs> collapsed on Beetlejuice. Fa- se- Actually, I wrote seven. Is it seven or five? I, I don't know. What One of the two. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just, was it like a two or three word name? And it means it's like a, yeah. a long sentence. <laughs> yep (laughs) i've given this book to many or at least asked many people to seek it out and read it Mm -hmm. afterwards i would normally ask them how they liked it obviously i got varying responses pretty much no matter what the response was but definitely if the response was just "Eh, it was okay I would ask if there was anything in the book that they did like and stuck out to them. Mm -hmm. As you know, I have many favorite jokes in the book. And usually their answer would be one of the jokes from that list. Right. I had my mom read the book. Okay. And she said, oh, it was was okay. You know, it's just, you know, (laughs) it's not for me, but, you know, I know it's a thing you like. (laughs) All that kind of stuff. Uh, (laughs) Probably said something along the line of, of being childish. So... I asked her the question about a fa- about a favorite part, and she said there was one. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Oh, what was it?" And I was just like ready for one of the standard answers, and that's not what I got. So I will I will read the excerpt of the joke that my mom said was her favorite part. When the infinite improbability drive was activated for the first time by Zaphod and Trillian, that ended up rescuing Ford and Arthur. All sorts of other crazy things were happening all over the universe due to its activation. One specifically was that 239,000 lightly fried eggs materialized in a large wobbly heap on the famine-struck land of Pogrel in the Pancel system. The whole Pogrel tribe had died out from (laughs) famine except for one last man who died of cholesterol poisoning some weeks later. (laughs) Like... Oh, that's a deep cut <laughs> of all of all the things in the ju- in the in the book. That's the one that resonated with her. Now she was a nurse. Makes sense to me. Being a nurse, it, it makes sense how <laughs> yes. cholesterol poisoning is funny. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's fantastic! 
Uh, I think I was in some kind of uh, stunned silence for a moment after she told me. It's not that I didn't think the part was funny, <laughs> but like I said, it's what I would consider a deep cut, not the average person's first choice. <laughs> so it is now officially mm-hmm. on my favorites list. <laughs> okay, let's see now. That's uh, favorites one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I also love it when they say here, and I know I think it's probably uh, said in a couple of different versions. But when they're talking about Bogon Jelts, he, it says here that he's he's always vaguely irritable whenever whenever he has to demolish a populated planet. <laughs> right. But it is interesting. They don't talk about Gag Halfront that much. No. No. The no, they don't. I do have a bit here about technology. It's funny okay. how it is predictive and antiquated at the same time like we said before in another podcast they're still using audio and videotape and eddie spits out ticker tape as he speaks so as eddie the computer is talking right there's paper just going right into a garbage can <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time the guide is technically an ebook reader and the radio on the Heart of Gold has gone beyond touchscreens to motion sensitivity. Right. So you have to hold really still, make sure you don't change stations. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which was funny to me in just, they've gone beyond touchscreens to motion sensitivity. And touchscreens are horrendously sensitive. Right. If you've ever tried to hand your phone to somebody and say, here, look at this. When they get the phone, it's gone. Just that, right. <laughs> whatever little touch hits the side of the screen totally wipes out everything that you had up on the screen. So I can only imagine what it would be if it was just in-air motion sensitivity. Well, man, you, you can really get a feeling for what it's, where it's going if you've ever put on one of those VR headsets. I don't know if you've had the opportunity, have you? Yes, I picked one up for some other reason that isn't going to work. I want somebody to invent an app that will take your cell phone and no matter what's on the screen, divide it up into two so you can read email with the VR screen. And the reason... (laughs) Okay. uh, And not that I want to read email, and I'll even give you my purpose, so... For those tech people out there who want to invent something, here's a need. My wife, Denise, does her horse riding lessons remotely. She gives them and she also gets them. So she teaches a woman in Washington State and she takes lessons from a woman in California. She's got to just sit there and stare at her screen when she's doing these lessons. Nobody needs to see her. So there, no camera has to be on her. Right. She just needs to be able to mm-hmm. see better this person who's riding a horse that's sometimes a great distance away from the camera. And I was hoping that we could take like Google Meet, like we're on here, and click a button that would turn it into the VR set. So she could put the VR set right. on her head and watch a Zoom meeting or a Google Meet meeting, like full screen, like right there, not the little computer screen in front of her, but just right there in her face. And 
as she turned her head, she could see side to side because it would it's only a square on the phone, but it's actually going to have more to the left and the right. But because Google Meet or Zoom believe that you need the camera on you so everybody can participate, there are uses for these services that don't need you to be seen. You're just doing a remote lesson. So even for teachers, Mm -hmm. they don't need to see their student. If they got 50 students, they just need to have, if the students could all put on this thing and read all the notes, that would be great. But I am not a tech guy. I can't write an app. I don't know how the video processes on a phone. (laughs) But I do know that Mm -hmm. you can make multiple windows. That's right. That's right. Well, it'd be an enhanced reality kind of exactly where they could see through the images and they could see the images that they're looking at. And that that's on its way. I mean, I put on a headset this Christmas when some one of the I guess my nephew came over and uh, I was amazed at how far those have come and the kind of interaction that they give you. You pick up the hand controllers and you can see your hands. (laughs) And it, it's amazing, you know, that almost mimics the exact motion of your hands uh, in front of you. And uh, it's quite in-depth and quite uh, interactive. I mean, you're right there inside whatever image that they've created for you. So anyway, if you go that far, then like you said, we're talking about the radio stations and the motion sen- motions and the waving and all that kind of thing. All of those things are effects that they take advantage of with VR. Yes, right. And here it is back in the early 80s, and he's talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. We're talking about the radio thing, and that's that's where that line comes in um, for all of your other intelligent beings. Uh, remember, folks, bang the rocks together, guys. Yes, yes. That came from the news. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> we're talking about this particular scene, and this is where Zaphod has another line that I really enjoy. And um, he says, after she throws the pencil and disrupts his news right. report, he says to her, if there's anything more important around here than my ego, I want it shot. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's it's actually during this part of the book where they talk about the, where Eddie references the idea that telephone numbers have a lot to do with this improbability drive. Uh, Not just the improbability drive, but just life in general. Right. People's lives are governed by telephone numbers. Correct. Absolutely. Another thing that I like the way he does is his, I guess I call it environmental humor. It's not a joke. It's just something that is happening in the background that the whole concept is funny. And an example of what I mean is when the Heart of Gold is under attack by the Magrathian missiles, mm-hmm. they need to use the manual controls. Right. And it wasn't just enough to have the manual controls appear, but since the ship was brand new, the equivalent of bubble wrap and packing peanuts spilled out of the controls. <laughs> and I thought that was a nice little yes. touch. <laughs> it's, around, it's actually a little bit before this that I noticed the first little difference between... The way that Adam refers to or reads the book to us compared to what the book has actually oh, says. Oh, this is where you noticed. Because here's okay. where he starts to talk about biros and the difference between a biro and a ballpoint pen. Right, yeah. So in an American edition, it would say ballpoint, where in an English or British mm-hmm. or UK edition, it would say biro. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
So when they were going to go on to the planet Magrathea, and Eddie's matronly personality was stalling them and preventing them from opening the door, and Zaphod threatened to reprogram the computer with an axe. <laughs> it was said to be the worst threat there could be, like saying, blood, 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 to a person. <laughs> really? That's the worst thing he could think of to say? At the beginning of the book, mm-hmm. Arthur says, I'll have you hung, drawn and quartered, whipped and boiled until you've had enough, and then I will do it again. And when I've finished, I'll take all the little bits, and I will jump on them. If I had a guy singing that in front of me, or a guy singing blood, 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 I'd be more worried about the guy out of his mind who's going to chop me into little bits and jump on him. Yep, there you go. (laughs) Summary Part 3. On the planet's surface, the group splits up. Arthur meets Slarty Bartfast, a coastline designer, and learns that Magrathea builds custom planets. He also learns that a race of hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings, who eventually take the form of mice, built a computer called Deep Thought. Deep Thought, the second most powerful computer of all space and time, was programmed to come up with the ultimate answer to the ultimate question of life the universe, and everything. Deep Thought said the answer is 42. The problem is the actual question is not known. Deep Thought designed an even more powerful computer to come up with the question. The computer would be the size of a planet and organic life forms would be part of its computer matrix. The computer would be called the Earth and was destroyed five minutes before its program ended. Uh, We haven't talked a lot about Marvin this episode so far, but here they use him as a rubble cleaner. So when the whale hit and created the crater, it didn't fully open up the passageway. They had to clear out some debris, and they used Marvin to clean up the debris. Mm -hmm. And he did it very efficiently, from what I understand. (laughs) Yes. Well, at least more efficiently than Zaphod had. (laughs) More of his prose that I really like. And after I read things like this, I try and dissect in my head and figure out why he wrote things the way he did or why he put in things that he did. So it says, Arthur was traveling in the car, air car, with Slarty Bartfast. Mm -hmm. And they come to the portal to the factory floor. It is a disc of irritating light that played tricks on the eyes, and Arthur guessed, quite wrongly, that it might be ultraviolet. It would have been enough just to describe the disc of light. He had to say that Arthur guesses wrong about it. It keeps you off balance. It's throwing Uh things in to see if you're paying attention, and it never says what it was. (laughs) It's like, we're going to... We're going to tell you that Arthur guessed it was ultraviolet and that he was wrong about it, but we're not going to tell you what it was. Yeah, that scene has plagued me a little bit. And and you talk about the geographic references, because he mentions at one point, and I I didn't take a note, but that the factory floor is, I think it was 12 light seconds apart. 
from wall to wall or yes. from edge to from the side of the globe to the side of the globe. And they're also talking about the speed of the air car at that time. And he says that the air car is going at three times the speed of sound. It would take a long freaking time <laughs> <laughs> for Slardy to cross across that 12 light seconds uh, of time to get from one side of that globe to the other side of that globe. So there's definitely a disconnect there in my mind that I can't quite get over. But later on, they talk about the velocity of the air car being what, what R16 or something? Right, yes. <laughs> Where it, it's just entirely too fast. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I'll, I'll give him some slack on that one. Right. <laughs> yeah, I did like his use of the R as in, like, relatively safe or something like that. It's it would, uh, For the <laughs> <Yeah>. conditions. <laughs> it wasn't how fast it's actually right, going. Exactly. It's how fast it's going in relation to how fast it should be going. <laughs> Another concept that I liked how he said was that the sphere that was 12 light seconds across or whatever gave the impression of infinity better than infinity. <laughs> exactly. I do like that quite a bit. I will start by saying that I've always really liked Slarty Bartfast. Yes. And I'd also guess that he's a favorite of many readers. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel about him? Oh, I, I really I really enjoy the conversations that he has and just the whole concept of Slarty is is a good one. And it's hard to imagine a story without some foil like that. I want to present examples of his behavior in this book that paint a different picture of him okay when he first meets arthur and arthur tells him that the missiles were shot at him slarty bartfast looks at the carcass of the whale in the crater chuckles slightly and brushes the whole thing off oh they just they just take the occasional pot <laughs> shot you know it's it's it was they shot missiles and if it wasn't for the infinite improbability it's not like the missiles always miss if it wasn't for the infinite improbability drive they'd be done he could care less (laughs) that wasn't bad enough Mm -hmm. in his study which was a total mess he explained to arthur right that due to a malfunction of life support the cleaning staff all died 30,000 years ago. Yes. And the only thing that concerned him about that was who was going to clear away the bodies because they were the cleaning staff <laughs> and they can't clean anymore. <laughs> and of course, he's helping known fugitives. Mm-hmm. So Slarty isn't all this good guy. <laughs> no, no, but he did threaten Arthur's life. Yes, he did. <laughs> yes. You knew he was dangerous. That's right. <laughs> He was going to make them late. (laughs) (laughs) But, and again, I got to applaud uh, Adams here because he put that in there as a direct reference, I think, in my opinion, to the the Golga Frenchams, you know? I mean, who else died in the Golga Frenchams but all of the telephone sanitizers? That's, yep. The cleaning cleaning staff, staff. you know? So they got rid of a useless third of their population. (laughs) So until they're affected by the things that happen in their real life, they, they don't care too much about those individuals. Right. Yes. 
Okay, so right before Arthur gets together with his group of people, that's Trillian and Ford and Zaphod, they're stuck in what they're calling the catalog, which is the catalog uh, or a VR simulation of all the different types of worlds and such that can be built by the Magratheans. Right. <laughs> One of the things that I liked, of course, is there's a previous reference to dolphins being, what were they, the second... Yes most intelligent beings on earth. But at one point there, all of three of them are standing in a big, huge pile of fish. And uh, they say, some people like the oddest things. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't, I can't stop thinking about, well, if I were a dolphin, that seemed like heaven to me. (laughs) It's really kind of interesting. They also bring up in the book, an area that they really don't discuss in any other place that I'm aware of is that's where Zaphod talks about his experience with uh, Uden Vranks, yes. the prior president. And he says that they are, in fact, semi-cousins. And they discuss at some length, or he discusses at some length, uh, what caused his disconnect between what he is actually doing, which he doesn't understand, right. and the results that he's getting, which he doesn't know he wants. Right. <laughs> So <laughs> it, it's just it, interesting that there's a tie in there while they're all standing around watching all these odd types of planets being projected through them and on onto this area where they are are being held captive. Yeah. And that food and ranks was a like a freighter captain or something. And mm-hmm. Ford broke into it to with Ford to steal candy. <laughs> and then they got beamed into prison right. or something. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And that that's a very interesting story. And it's only here in this book that part of the story is actually laid out. Summary, part four. Since Arthur was on Earth, right up until it was destroyed, the mice believe the question is in his brainwave patterns. They want to buy his brain. Arthur refuses. All of a sudden, the intergalactic police catch up with Zaphod. Also, the Magrathian security forces are trying to apprehend Arthur for the mice. Slarty Bartfast helps the group escape from the Magrathian security, and Marvin helps them escape from the intergalactic police. They all fly away on the heart of gold, and Zaphod realizes that he is hungry. All right, I have a part here that I want to talk about, and I'm not sure how to, to set it up, because it's a... It's an armchair quarterback or a hindsight is twenty twenty type of thing. Mm-hmm. Here's where I noticed a missed opportunity. Okay. I mean, everything that he writes is is brilliant. And, and in no way, shape, or form am I going to say that I could do a better job. Because <laughs> absolutely not. But after my you know 20th time reading the book, I saw something that I was like, Oh, he he missed this. He could have put in something that would have closed a loop in the book that he closed in the radio series. In the radio series episode where the missiles turn into a whale and petunias mm-hmm. due to the, you know, stress and anxiety they had to reveal that somebody bruises their upper arm. Right. And like here in the book, they also did the same thing if you listened all the way through to the post-credits, it is said that Arthur 
bruised his upper arm. Right. So in the radio series, they reveal the fact who bruised their arm. The book never reveals it. <laughs> the book never never says it. Right. However, there's this part after the mice and after everything when all the alarm bells are going. Arthur has declined selling his brain to the mice. Mm-hmm. And he and the group were trying to escape. And the mice rose in their glass transports and swooped in at Arthur. Right. Arthur was transfixed by the airborne mice and he was frozen in place. Mm -hmm. It is said that Trillian grabbed him by the arm and tried to drag him to a door that Zaphod and Ford were trying to open. Right. How perfect would it have been if Arthur yelled, Ow! My bruise. <laughs> There's an opportunity to throw in who bruised their arm if you were paying attention and it was missed. And the ow my bruise would have snapped him out of his being transfixed by the mice in their transports and then they could have escaped. So, I don't know, that's my, there that's my thing that I saw and I'm like, oh... <laughs> I can make it better. <laughs> oh, there you go. I do actually think that there's two other things in this particular part of the book that I thought were interesting is when Broom Fondle and Magic Thighs are discussing why they want the computer shut off. They say, for one thing, if, we, if it goes about proving that God exists and then gives you God's phone number. I don't know if yes. you picked up on that one. It's or another not. phone number. Yep, the phone number. Because <laughs> I thought, of course, that that's another uh, episode or another aspect where the phone number and probability would fall into it. And I thought that was an interesting little add-on. I think it's only there in the book that they say that. Because I believe they say address in the radio show. Oh, I'm I'm not sure which it goes, but I do know I, I heard right, it in the book. Right. And the other thing that I think is interesting was, and, and we talked about this too when we were talking about the radio show, was that in the book, Slarty Bartfast explains the first part of the story himself. Right. At the end of the chapter, it says that that's basically how he summarized it or something like that to say that he explained it. And then in the next chapter, chapter 27, that's when Arthur is hooked up to the Senso tape. Uh, where he experiences the second part. Like surround VR. He be, he becomes part of the scene. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, but I, I think it's hysterical that he basically grabs two naked wires, <laughs> one, hand, one in each hand, and that's how he gets connected to this device. <laughs> but anyway, that tickled me quite a bit. It's during this part of the story where Benji and Frankie are talking about what they might do in, and how they might come up with an answer that's going to work, where they mentioned that it was by merest lucky chance that they were off the planet on vacation when it was destroyed. And that they then were the tools used to get to Magrathea. They say that Magrathea is a gateway back to their own dimension. So they needed to return to Magathea in order to return to their dimension. Yeah, I found that interesting how it all came about. Also, here's a slight difference that they discussed because the way they managed to get themselves out of trouble has to do with the awards that are around the office. And right. 
the spoken version, they they refer to them as perspex blocks. And of course, us Americans would know that as plexiglass. And that's the way it's written. So the the book book says plexiglass, but he says perspex. But uh, perspex blocks, (laughs) which I think is interesting. (laughs) The other thing, this is way back, but since you're talking about the difference between the English versions, the UK and the US versions, there are some editions, not very many, but some, and this has always confused me as a kid and I never understood it, and it was only later as an adult that I finally figured it out, and it's actually visually less funny to me than it is in reality than what I had in my mind. But there's that whole... Mm-hmm. After God disappears in a puff of logic, he decided to prove black was white yes. and got killed at the next zebra crossing, right. which is a pedestrian crossing. <laughs> so there are U.S. versions that say pedestrian crossing rather than zebra crossing. And as a kid listening to zebra crossing, I didn't understand that in the U.K., the pedestrian crossings with the white lines, they actually call zebra crossings. Oh, see, now I had no idea. I just learned something see? myself, Jeff. I literally thought they got killed by a herd of crossing. <laughs> Me too, because where we live, there are all kinds of deer crossing signs, and I just thought it was a zebra crossing sign. But a zebra crossing oh. is the striped pedestrian crossing in the UK. So that is another one of those. Oh, there you go cultural differences that you find out way long after you've established in your mind what it means. <laughs> oh my gosh, I never I didn't know that. I really didn't. I always assumed it was a bunch of zebras ran Even into though him. I know he means a pedestrian crossing, <laughs> I still visualize a guy right. getting run over by a herd of zebra. <laughs> Cuz it's funnier. <laughs> It is funny. And it makes less sense, which goes better with this book. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That's interesting. The ending of this book is much different than the radio series. Yes. In one of the footnotes in the book of the original radio scripts, I read that he ended the first season like there was not going to be a season two. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he had to do all of this, you got luckies, to find that second season and figure out some way to bring the characters back. The second season ended like there was going to be a third season, but there wasn't (laughs) back then, since they have added one, but he didn't get one back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. So I guess he figured he should end the book leaving an easier opportunity to continue, which was they've split up the group and the Heart of Gold is off with Arthur and Trillian and Zaphod and Ford are stuck back on the asteroid with the person who rules the universe. And this is where we learn Marvin's true usefulness to the group. Yes. This is where he does a little of the subtle joke-telling with a purpose that I admire so much. Mm -hmm. So when he is describing the police vehicle next to the Heart of Gold, he mentions the stenciled lettering of various sizes. Right. He said it informed anyone who read it where it was from and what section of the police it belonged to. And all of that makes perfect sense for a police vehicle. Mm -hmm. And we habitually read it on every police vehicle that we see. Right. He then throws in, there's lettering where the power feeds are connected. Right. And we chuckle because even though on a vehicle like that, there would be power feeds 
and there would be small lettering telling you what the feeds were, you wouldn't mention it as part of telling somebody what was written on a police vehicle. No. Unless <laughs> it was very important to the plot, <laughs> exactly. and Marvin was going to save the day by talking the police vehicle to death. Literally. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. The police vehicle commits suicide after speaking with Marvin. Yeah. And then because they were keeping the cops alive who could not breathe the atmosphere at Magrathea, mm-hmm. that's how they were able to get away from the cops and everybody escaped. And, of course, the Magrathean security force was taken out by Slarty Bartfast with the Perspex Award. Perspex blocks. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, and, and this is just the the last little bit of it. Again, they refer to uh, the device that the cops are using to speak to the group as a hailer. And in the book, it's referred to as a bullhorn. Oh, really? Again, another American English version. Yeah, I, I didn't do the read-along with the audiobook. I've got a copy of the book here that I, I flip to when I'm writing my notes and I need to make direct quote references. But I've not seen hailer mm-hmm. versus bullhorn. That's that's in there right at the end of the book. So this is one of the other interesting things that I found out during this part of the episode. And we've talked about this before a little bit about the, the passage of time. Right. And in the book here, earlier in the book, they clearly all go to sleep. Right. Well, not everybody. I think one of them stays up all night. That's 100% correct. Right. Arthur is actually the only one who falls asleep. Right according to what goes on there, because they both get up, Trillian and um, Zaphod are working on calculations, and Ford is wandering around the ship or something. I'm not sure exactly what. But uh, it's when they wake up, or actually when Arthur wakes up, is when Trillian makes the comment that it's dawn, or it's about to be dawn on Magrathia. Correct. And I know we've had a discussion about that. And that's just a reference to, to time having passed. So in my mind, that means it's Friday, when they get to Magrathea, well, at least on an Earth Friday. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're not sure how many days there are in the average universal uh, calendar <laughs> or how long they are. And, and that's what comes up here right at the end. I don't know if you caught this or not, but as they are leaving the planet, we are told that sun's, the sun is setting again. Because it was setting... I don't... No, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. No, I, I, I take that wrong. No, we are told that it is morning, that the sun is rising. Okay. Because it was setting when Slarty Bartfast met Arthur and brought him into the planet. And they did everything with the mice, and then they came out. And when they came out... They mentioned that the sun... What, the, the, that it was, the, it was morning, that the sun was rising on the planet. It was morning. So they spent all night, all Megrathian night. Oh, the other, oh, here's something that we didn't mention that I want to throw in there. This book ends very abruptly with a throwaway line of Zephod just going, let's all have dinner at the restaurant at the end of the universe. Just out of the blue with no context, and it's very disjointed. It is jarring. My understanding is that the editors were so upset at how past his deadline that he was, they sent an assistant or somebody to his house to stand over his shoulder, and on a particular day, at a particular time, he was going to take the manuscript for publication 
regardless <laughs> of where he was. Sounds about right. So he had to end it. <laughs> so that's why yes. it just seems to be going on and on and then it ends. And then there's this throwaway line that yep. doesn't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. It sets up the name of the sequel of the book. It does. But it certainly doesn't doesn't start where it ended. Correct. All right, look at this. We have come to the end of the Pretty first book. Oh, absolutely. So our next podcast will be about the 1980s Infocom text adventure game. And if you want to check it out and play it for yourself in advance, there is a 30th anniversary edition available on the BBC website. So say goodbye, Brian. All right, Jeff. I'll just say goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. Thank you for listening to Digital Watches Are a Pretty Neat Idea. Look for us the first Thursday of every month for a full episode. We will also release a bonus episode later in the month. A very special thanks goes out to Luke, Max, Greg, and Tim Lesnick for arranging and performing our opening theme. We would also like to thank our talented friends and families for their voice work on our introductions and commercials. For this episode, a special thank you goes out to Lauren and Danny Ortega for our opening. We would also like to thank Kelly Lesnick for doing our summary. Visit our website at digitalwatchesareaprettyneatidea.buzzsprout.com where you can find links to all my Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy-inspired t-shirt designs. You can find us on Facebook and YouTube as Digital Watches Are a Pretty Neat Idea and on Twitter at Watches Idea. If you'd like to contact us, our email is digitalwatchespodcast at gmail.com. This has been a Fruits for Thought production.